This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have an extra special guest. His name is Thomas Lin, and he has a fascinating background in math and science as well as journalism. He is the founding editor of Quanta Magazine, uh, which is a news and math website founded and funded by Jim Simon's uh, foundation. Uh, Simons is the founder of Renaissance Technologies, one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. Uh, Jim Simons and his wife Marilyn run a philanthropic foundation where they are very interested in math and science education, both at at the most basic level, um, educating American um, students to be better at math and science, and uh, as you'll see with Quanta at the very highest levels, uh, I've been a fan of the site for since it launched. It's really quite fascinating. You don't need a PhD in mathematics or science to be able to keep up with it. It's really intriguing. Um, Thomas has done a, a, a wonderful job finding some of the most interesting uh, research and stories uh, uh, and breaking news about the latest discoveries in math and science and, and making it very readable and very accessible. Um, if you're at all interested in science and math, and really all of us should be, then I think you'll find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Quanta Magazine's Editor-in-Chief, Thomas Lin. My guest this week is Thomas Lin. He is the founding editor of Quanta Magazine. It is an award-winning, editorially independent science and math site published by the Simons Foundation. Uh, that is the philanthropic arm of Jim Simons, who founded Renaissance Technologies. Uh, Thomas Lin previously was the digital editor uh, for the New York Times. Uh, he comes to us by way of Cornell University and the Oregon State University, where he got his master's in teaching and literature. Is that right? That's right. Fantastic. Thomas Lin, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So so you have a really eclectic background, and I want to spend a little time um, getting into that and find out how you ended up founding Quanta, but let's talk about your background. You're an engineer. You're a former editor at The Times. How do you end up... Um, creating a magazine like Quanta. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a crazy story. I mean, I think with as with a lot of people who end up in, in a place that they ultimately really enjoy and, and feel very uh, satisfied with in, in terms of their careers, I sort of fell into it. I mean, I, I started out you know, in college just not knowing what I wanted to do, and I studied physics, and I studied literature, and I you know, really was all over the place. And so I ended up sort of utilizing a little bit of the physics side of things as an engineer initially, but then I also wanted the human aspect, so I taught for a few years. Mm -hmm. And I realized, that, especially after 9-11, um, I realized that I wanted to be out there in the world learning more about what's happening and helping to bring news events to uh, the broader public. And so I decided to become a journalist and eventually backed my way into science journalism. So, so you end up um, at the Writers' Institute uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center. Ultimately, you start teaching journalism there. When you look at the world of science writing, are there many people who have both aspects, the hard science of physics and either literature or journalism, or does that make you a relatively rare bird? 
you know, I think that people, a lot of people are, are smarter than I am and when they're younger and they realize what they're good at and they specialize and they either go sort of the science track or they become, you know, a humanities major, they study literature or they study, you know, something else or they go into law or medicine or something like that. Uh, I really just have a broad interest from a very young age and I loved writing, I was very interested in literature, but I also had parents who were essentially physicists and I grew up in this very science uh, culture kind of environment. All my family, I have a lot of scientists in my family, and so there's always that part of my brain that that works that way so, too. So both parents were physicists. What what was the dinner table conversation like? Yeah, no, I was definitely pushed uh, to go ahead in things like math and physics in in, in school. I uh, ended up studying calculus after my freshman year in high school, and um, and you know, so the, the conversations were about everything. But there was definitely a scientific bent to a lot of those conversations. And we had, uh, my mom loved puzzles, and we had puzzles all over the place in our house. That's that's interesting. So you spend a few years doing journalism. You end up as a digital editor at the New York Times. What what did that involve? Yeah, so initially I, I started on the, the national desk at the time. So it wasn't about science at all, and I was just mm-hmm. a journalist to learn about what's happening in the world and bring that to people. And, uh, and that was great. I mean, the Times, when I decided I wanted to go into journalism, you know, like many people, the Times was the dream, right? That's where I wanted sure. to be. And I was very lucky to, to be able to land that that job when I did. And I started on the digital side, uh, which created really interesting opportunities in terms of that interface between the newer technologies that were starting to change the way journalism was done and sort of the older traditional legacy uh, print publication. And there are a lot of things were just changing. It was a very sort of uh, radical time in a way to be at the Times. And I recall the New York Times being pretty Leading edge in terms of interactive graphics. Anytime there's a, a, a complex news event, uh, the Times, as well as the Wall Street Journal and, and later on the Washington Post, would have these giant, intricate. Um, so, Katrina and the flooding, I remember you would just kind of scroll through that, and it was. Um, and now you go back and look at it that at the time it was so advanced. Mm-hmm. Today that's kind of rookie stuff. It's really bleeding yes. edge technology, very isn't much, it? Very much. And they, they were they were had a great foresight in terms of it starting early. They didn't necessarily have it all figured out early on, but they started early. They started getting stuff on the web. They started hiring people like me to think about what we could do did, journalistically online that wasn't just a repli- replicating the paper. I remember working on some of the Hurricane Katrina coverage and working all night because it was so important to bring people immediate pictures of what was happening on the ground, and that's not something you can get through a daily newspaper. Right. The, the print, listen, print is really important, and, and the written word it really matters, but it's true. Uh, if a picture's worth a thousand words, what is an interactive graphic worth? Exactly. So, so how do you get from the Times to Quanta? That's a pretty big, um, I'll avoid all the cliches, I'm, I, that's a pretty big leap, isn't it? Uh, uh, sure, yeah, and, it, and it's hard because I, I was at the Times for almost eight years. I was there for about seven and a half years. Uh, after the National Desk, I worked on the Science Desk for about three years and learned a lot from the editors there. And I think it was because I was on the Science Desk, somebody from the Science Foundation reached out asking, did I know any good science editors who could help them produce high-quality science articles. And I sort of scratched my head, and I wanted to find out more about who I should recommend. So I asked them about this job just to find out who, hey, who would I be a good fit. Hey, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah, no, but and, and, you know, and, and the thing is that I, you know, I, I was a journalist, so I, I, I was not interested in going to do communications or PR, that sort of thing. Right. And so, uh, but in talking to the foundation, I, I started to learn that they actually had this other publication already that was editorially independent, and there was a possibility that whoever came into this role 
could do some editorially independent science journalism. And so I got a little bit interested and thought, well, what if we actually could start a magazine and do something a little bit bigger and really change the way, hopefully, that people see uh, how science coverage is done. And, and Quanta Online, I, I link to it pretty regularly. I, I love some of the graphics that you guys do. It's pretty clear that this is a well-thought-out, big-budget specialty site. Um, so it's, well, not, it's not that big budget, actually. So we, we have a really? small, small team who that works very, very hard. <laughs> well, let me then rephrase that. It looks like it has a pretty big budget because there, there aren't a lot of, you know, gee whiz... Uh, special effects, but it, it's pretty in-depth um, coverage, and and a lot of the breaking news in math and science, and I know that's almost uh, a counterintuitive statement. It doesn't just get you know a rip and read off a PR release. None, it's a never. deep explanation about here's what just was discovered through this research, and here's why it's significant, and here's how this fits into the long history of this aspect of math or science. Right, right, exactly, and that's exactly why I wanted to start this publication, is I looked out there at the offerings that most mainstream publications had in terms of their science coverage, and it was a little disheartening, I have to say. I mean, not, not only the level of uh, the the lack of depth of the coverage, but also to some extent the choice. I mean, so much of what you see is is health and technology coverage, but so little of it is fundamental basic science, which is really where all of our knowledge comes from about the world and about the universe around us. And so I wanted to cover not only these subjects, which are uh, inherently the most fundamental, deepest, biggest questions we have about everything and what's you know what's in the universe, how things work, but also cover it in a way with a little bit of depth, still tell engaging stories about it, but actually get things right. Do the careful fact-checking. Do the careful reporting and research. Take the time to get the story right and to tell the more nuanced story of what's happening in science. Quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, I had a conversation recently with someone, and part of our discussion was having to acknowledge that we are living in a golden age of physics, of new mathematical breakthroughs, of astrophysics, we have never known more about the universe, either on an astronomical level or at the quantum level, than ever before. Am I overselling that, or is that is so, that a fair statement? I, I think it it's it. I think that's fair on one hand. So we are learning more than ever. At the same time, we're also learning how much we don't know, and I think that's also where we are. So it's, it's a golden era in terms of being in this. I think it's very exciting the things that we can do now, whether it's experimentally in terms of the theories and the math that's being developed. At the same time, we're also hitting the limits of what we can test experimentally in terms of the largest structures and and uh, thinking about the the cosmos, but also the smallest. Um, you know, quantum uh, level uh, interactions, we're, we're sort of coming to a point where the theories can no longer be fully tested experimentally. And mm -hmm. that is leading to a little bit of a, an internal uh, sort of uh, soul searching. And, and, you know, there's there's work to be done to figure out what the next revolution will be in physics. So so the Dunning-Kruger curve applies to everything. Uh, you could say that. <laughs> so, um, and for those of you who are not familiar with that, just Google Dunning-Kruger, and you'll you'll spend hours reading fascinating things about the things we think we know but don't. But but that's really kind of a fascinating area as, as we approach the limits of what we can test in a laboratory. Does that mean theoretical physics or or moving away from applied mathematics to theoretical math becomes uh, an increasingly important aspect of our research? 
Well, I think that's where the the debates are happening, right? Around this is you know both things, whether it's in the laboratory in terms of looking at things that are really small, or also uh, even looking out uh, what we can actually uh, in terms of the visible universe, what we can see. And of course, there's a lot that we can't see in terms of dark matter and dark energy, things that we st- most of the universe is 95% of the universe is made up of stuff that we don't even know what it is, or. Right? We're just not seeing what's there. And there's an interest. I'm trying to remember. So I have two of your books, which we'll talk about later. But there was this, a debate about dark matter. And part of the question becomes, is there is dark matter really 95% of the universe? or our, well, dark our, matter and dark energy together. Right. Yeah. Or are our technologies and ability to perceive the rest of the universe not picking up what, what may or may not be there? And so the assumption is... It's dark matter or something else. How much of this is a measurement issue, and how much of this is, gee, we really have no idea what the heck's out there? Uh, well, uh, there there is a lot of indirect evidence that this stuff is out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that we're observing indicates that dark matter and dark energy does exist. There are some theories out there that have... I think slowly been uh, they're they're sort of not they're they're losing favor because the, the evidence is not supporting it. There's some ideas of modified gravity and, and other right. ways that you could explain away things like dark matter. But I think uh, most physicists agree that dark matter and dark energy exist, but we just don't know what it is and we don't have the ability to detect it and we can't see it because um, whatever it is, it's not inter- well, it's, yeah, it's dark, but it's not interacting with things that we can detect. But we we continue to see that that the universe continues to expand faster than it would if if visible matter and energy was all there was. So there has to be something driving galaxies apart, no matter what direction in, right. in space. Right. Right. The, the movements of galaxies. Uh, uh, you know, there's got to be something that that's affecting that movement, and and that's uh, dark matter. And then the acceleration of the universe uh, is is the dark energy causing that. So so let's talk a little bit about quanta. You're a foundation-based publication as opposed to a subscription slash advertising. Um, format. How does that make um, what you do a little different? And does that afford you freedoms to go places that perhaps the traditional media just simply doesn't have the time or patience? Yeah, no, I think it is liberating in the sense that we are both editorially independent, and yet we are funded to do this very mission-oriented, very important kind of journalism, making fundamental science accessible to all. Uh, there are other publications like this that are nonprofit that are uh, funded by foundations like ProPublica, for example, sure. that is very important investigative journalism. And these are the areas of journalism that have a hard time attracting advertisers. They're very expensive because it takes a lot of time to do it well, but they, they don't pay for it themselves. And so they've been uh, slowly receding from the, the commercial publications that, that we have. Yeah, none of, none of your headlines would, would make it onto BuzzFeed, to, to say the least. Um, how Neanderthal DNA helps humanity. The neuroscience behind bad decisions uh, in newly created life form, a, ma- a major mystery. I mean, these aren't the sort of things that are especially clicky, but they're important parts of, of new research and disseminating them out from behind a paywall is important. Very much. It's very important that it's freely accessible. And, you know, we try to make the our, our headlines inviting, but at the same time, we, we try to capture a little bit of what the story is really about. And so we don't do the clickbait. We don't do things that are overly sensational or, or misleading. So, so really, that raises the key question. How do you decide, hey, this is a good topic, this is a good subject, or this piece of research is accessible enough for, to those people who aren't experts in this, you know, it used to be... You were a generalist, a mile wide, 
and not too deep. Now it's the opposite. Everyone is such a specialist. It's a quarter inch wide and a mile deep. How do you decide who mm-hmm. to appeal to? Well, yeah, first of all, I would say that there's nothing that I consider uh, something that we wouldn't cover in terms of how difficult it is. That, mm-hmm. That's something that we, that's sort of our calling card as a publication. We, we will cover the hardest, most abstract, difficult subjects out there. But we, uh, you know, really, so one thing is that as journalists and as people who are, have been covering this uh, these areas for quite a while, we do get a sense and we get, get a sense of, of uh, develop hopefully a, a, a uh, a good taste in terms of what are uh, important and interesting stories, but at the same time, we're not experts in these subjects, so we can't just say, oh, well, I think this is important, therefore, I'm, we're just going to cover this. We actually talk to a lot of the, the true experts out in the field. We talk to many people, and not just people with their own pet theories, but to enough people where we can get a sense of, okay, there, there is this uh, groundswelling of, of, of interest and, and level of excitement about this new idea, and it's worth talking about. At the same time, it's worth talking about the caveats, too, and the limitations, and so we try to do that as well. So who are the journalists you have writing about these very hard subjects? Are they science people first who can write, or are they writers who have an interest in science? It's really both. Yeah, so we have both. We have people who, uh, we have a former math professor who, who's now a fantastic, probably one of the best uh, math writers, journalists out there uh, today. Uh, we have our, our staff physics writer uh, studied uh, at least partway through a, a, a physics uh, graduate program. Uh, but we also have our, our staff math writer is uh, someone who was a humanities major and, and did not have a math background, but now has been covering it for enough, uh, long enough, and who has been talking to enough of the top experts that he has this just crystal clear ability to explain some of the most uh, difficult, profound, pure mathematics that you wouldn't believe. And so it's something, and, and you know, other writers like uh, Carl Zimmer, very well-known biology writer, he's written sure. for us a couple of times. He was also a humanities major as well. He's one of the foremost biology writers of our time and, and has, has even written textbooks on evolution and things like that. So uh, really, it can come from both sides. As long as you end up in a place where you can do both, uh, understand enough of the of the deep science and write well about it. Quite, quite fascinating. So no less an expert than Sean Carroll, who writes for a number of fine publications, including the New York Times, called Quanta a revelation. What makes Quanta different than your typical math or science publication, assuming that there are still math publications. I don't know if there are. <laughs> well, that's one of the things. There really aren't any popular math publications, and that's partly why I wanted to start Quanta as well. Uh, that was very kind of Sean to say that, and he also wrote the foreword uh, to our new science book as well, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, and uh, he said some really kind things in there, but he also talked about something that is, is very true about uh, sort of where we are in terms of media coverage of science, and, and there are the scientists who are the ones who are the experts who are doing this work uh, often look at, even though they, they do take the interviews and they talk to reporters, uh, they often are quite skeptical of the way that the media treats that, their work because, uh, unfortunately, um, some publications don't take the time to carefully vet the work and they cover things that either aren't necessarily good studies or they don't talk to enough people to get a sense of what's really going on or they just throw out these headlines that make it seem like you know, we've cured cancer when really we haven't. We've learned maybe a little bit more about one specific aspect of sure, the disease. Sure, sure. Look at, look at how the entire anti-vaxxer craziness just ran away from any rational thought. And it was just a combination of people not doing their homework and, uh, of course, a giant fraud in the Lancet to start out. So the whole thinking behind this is we want to do this right. We want to do it carefully. Uh, how long do you typically take to... Uh, create um, a full story. It, some of these are pretty in-depth, and it looks like they're not... Like, I can crank something out in 20 minutes. 
these are not short pieces. Right. No, not at all. And, and uh, you know, it really does, does depend. Some, sometimes there is news that we have to respond to quickly and we have to turn something around in a few days. That's that's not that common, though, in the areas that we're covering, right? So most of the time we do have at least a few weeks to work on these stories. Uh, some stories, uh, some features, you know, that are a couple thousand words could take three weeks to do. Some pieces take a few months, just partly because we're still developing, the ideas are still developing, we need to talk to people, uh, the work isn't quite completed yet, and you know, often we're actually covering papers that are coming coming out on the archive, what's known as the archive, uh, which is a repository of scientific preprint uh, papers, mm-hmm. which means that they haven't yet been accepted to uh, a a journal, and they haven't been peer-reviewed, and yet this is the place now where you have open access to all sorts of important papers that then other scientists can just chime in and they can give feedback on it. And we can also talk to other experts to make sure that a paper is uh, worthwhile, that it's been carefully vetted before we cover it. So so let me throw a curveball at you, because uh, I think the average person is unaware of what's going on in academia and publications. Um, even though most of this research is funded by the government, is taxpayer funded, uh, a handful, it began as a handful of research journals started to get bought up by uh, one or two organizations, and they just kept getting bought up, and, and eventually it reached the point where the vast majority of academic publications are are behind a paywall, and it's not a cheap paywall. These are thousands yes. and thousands of yes. dollars. Yes. Uh, how problematic is that for the progress of science? That's a great question. This is something I covered for the New York Times back in 2012. I had a story that was on the cover of, of Science Times, and you know this is uh, this really goes to the fundamental question of uh, what is science for? Who is it for? Who has the right to access and see the results of the work that are Tax money is going, you know, is is paying for essentially, and so uh, you're you're right that there have been companies that have been extremely profitable in taking the work of scientists, uh, taxpayer funded science, and the scientists who actually run the journals and edit the journals often for free, uh, and turning around and packaging and bundling these into journals and and that they sell for very high price back to universities and normal people. Academic libraries exactly, and the like. Exactly. They, who they, have to buy these. Right. They make millions of And actually, so there was a, a big piece of news recently when the the, the entire University of California uh, system Said no decided, more. yes, we're no longer, to, to one particular publisher, Elsevier, which is really has drawn uh, a lot of the ire of, of scientists and, and people who want access to, these, to the science that they're paying for. So I'm glad UC did that. Wouldn't it be just as easy to have Congress to say, Oh, and by the way, if you're going to take our millions of dollars of research, you must publish in a no paywall peer review site. And this is this is for everybody, not just for a few mercenary publishers. Right. And, and that puts the onus on the scientists. And I think that's really where the the you know rubber meets the road in terms of there now people are the scientists, the people uh, doing the research are put in a tough spot in terms of do they continue to uh, submit their papers to these very reputable uh, journals where you have you know these reputation points that affects your ability to get tenure and and to to sort of move forward in your academic career to be published in these uh, the most well-known journals or do you then say well we're going to start going to the public library of science or to the new uh, bio archive or are we going to you know sort of skip that step and is there enough of an incentive structure built around those newer forms of open access science publications that can then 
uh, feedback and make it uh, worthwhile for for uh, researchers to go that route. Hmm. Quite quite intriguing. You know, given that peer reviews are so important to scientific papers, and given how successfully the internet seems to do that, one would think that there would be some sort of a, a venue for people to bypass these. I know it's a resume builder. I know it's very prestigious, and anybody who hopes to wins subsequent um, research grants and or awards, uh, wants to be published in these places. But there's sort of a vicious cycle. How do you break that if you want to disseminate this widely um, and yet still allow taxpayer research to find its way into the hands of of the public? Right. I think that's being worked on now. There are some groups and, and people who are leading the charge, who are uh, starting things like the BioArchive and who have been working on the archive for many years and, and trying to develop a better model for how to um, publish science, how to vet it carefully, and how to ultimately make it accessible to anyone who wants to, uh, to read it. So, so you said the harder a subject is to understand, the more likely we are to cover it. Can you give me an example of that? Okay, that's sort of an inside joke. That's not, we, don't, we don't just look at that. We don't decide what to cover based on how difficult it is, but at the same time, we don't shy away from that either. And so I, uh, I think the example that I, I like to give for that is that uh, one of our early viral stories, actually, in fact, it's still the most popular story that we've ever published, is about this very, very uh, deep physics idea that is um, both a, a way, it's a geometric way to simplify calculations of particle interactions, a way, in a, in a sense, to simplify what Feynman diagrams tried to simplify back when Richard Feynman uh, created them uh, decades ago. Uh, and, and at the same time, this geometric uh, approach could also lead eventually, it hasn't yet, uh, it hasn't been proven yet, uh, could lead to a way to get things like gravity and space-time to emerge from from a more fundamental reality. And so this was a mind-blowing concept. The math itself and the physics itself is, is very complicated. Sure. But this story was read and shared so broadly. It was viewed more than a million times. Wow. It even uh, made an appearance on uh, uh, Conan O'Brien's show. He mentioned it in his, in his opening monologue. And uh, so this was shared so broadly and widely, but it, it was a mind-blowing idea because people, I think a lot of people hadn't necessarily grasped the possibility that space-time and gravity aren't necessarily the most fundamental aspects of our universe, and that could be emergent, and that there could be things that could lead to it, a new math that we could figure out, new simple, well, somewhat simple-looking uh, geometries that could be underlying uh, all of reality. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about science getting a little bit political lately. Isn't politics the antithesis of science? So I think... Yes, collectively, as a collective enterprise, science is all about uh, having ideas, uh, carefully examining them, finding evidence to support it, and then if it's a bad idea, throwing it out, right? And if it's a good idea, you keep working on it, you keep refining it further. Uh, Politics generally doesn't work that way, right? You sort of, it's, it's much more of a, a hodgepodge of, of ideas and people throwing, and there's not a lot of evidence sometimes supporting that. And so on a collective level, I think that's true. Individually, scientists are human also and have opinions and have political views. And so I, I don't know that it's uh, as, as a human activity that it's completely divorced from politics and certainly not from society. Um, but I think that in the sense that science is striving for truth, and, and, and finding facts. 
and uh, politics uh, often does not do that. So I, I would say that it, 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 they can be quite different at times. So, so briefly, why do you find that science literacy is so important for people in society who eventually will be casting votes that help determine our future? Right. Yeah. No. I think um, I think one thing is that uh, science is the best way for understanding reality, right? And it's, it's, it's the way that we've developed all of the technologies, all of the modern medicine, everything that that we enjoy now in terms of the quality of life comes from that. And so many of the decisions that we have to make as citizens, as a country, as a government have a scientific element to them. And if we can examine those uh, scientific facts carefully, we can make better decisions. And another way to think about it is, would you rather live in a society where, where people just sort of believe whatever they want to believe? Or would you rather be part of a community where everyone, even if you have disagreements in terms of your ideologies, your politics, your philosophy, you at least agree that facts are facts. And I think that's you know one of the, the keys, I think, to me, is why I want people to be more scientifically literate. See, I would like to live in a, a society where facts are important and, and reality matters. But for now, I'm staying in America. <laughs> so until we resolve that. Um, but the funny thing is, and, and I only say that half jokingly, on the finance side, you have people like Ray Dalio of Bridgewater and, and other people who have made that exact argument with the caveat that if you put capital at risk based on something that is not reality-based, well, you're going to lose money. And right. so what we see in politics is there, at least so far, there's not a penalty for believing things that are untrue. Right. The beauty of the markets are that feedback loop is very immediate. Politics, you can go decades. Uh, look at the the people who claim smoking didn't cause cancer. Right. It took decades before that came home to roost. Right, and, so, I, and I'll just add, I think this works on a personal level too. I think that people who are uh, scientifically literate or at least can think in a more scientific way can make better decisions for themselves so they don't get into trouble. They don't either fall for scams or they, they can make better career choices. And certainly it can lead to to uh, better options for themselves. That, that's a fair fair statement. Here's the, the credible pushback I'm, I, we, we're going to get about this. And I don't mean the flat earth people or the, you know, anti-vaxxers or uh -huh. the sure. global warming denialists. Very recently, something came out and now eggs are bad for us again. <laughs> if you remember, eggs were bad for us a long time ago and then eggs were good for us. And I, I mentioned to somebody I was going to be speaking to you and their question was margarine. Can we eat it? Can we throw it away? It was good. It was bad. It was good. It was bad. I understand the scientific process is provisional, yes. dependent upon whatever the next best piece of information that comes along. But how do you deal with the public that, ah, I just can't keep up with all this? Right. How, how do you manage that sort of expectation that people want black and white answers in a world that's really very nuanced? Right, and this is sort of what I was alluding to before in terms of the responsibility I think that uh, journalists and the media have to cover science accurately and uh, carefully. And uh, so the one thing is that, yes, there are many studies out there. Uh, there's, there are stronger studies and there are weaker studies, and there are, there are studies that have mistakes in them as well. And so right. uh, the, the journalists who are covering and writing about science to a broader public have to be able to differentiate between what are studies that are have, have been done with the right um, 
procedures that have the large sample sizes that um, you know have been carefully vetted by others as well. And then also even in talking about it and writing about it um, accurately and uh, carefully conveying what it, the study really says, right? Because again, that's where you get the headlines that say we've done this, or margarine's right. bad for you, or salt is bad for you, or whatever it is. Uh, and it, it really, they, they ignore too often uh, the nuances of it. What does the study really say? What do we not know? And what are we still trying to learn? So what do you do with something like quantum physics? Does, does when we're talking about sub-subatomic particles, at a certain point, does that just far beyond the grasp of a layperson to understand? And how do you cover something like that? Um, or do you just shrug your shoulders and say, no one's going to ever understand what a muon or a gluon is amongst the lay population? Well, so I, I would start by saying that even the foremost experts, uh, physicists, don't really understand everything about quantum <laughs> physics, right? So, I mean, this is one sure. it's very difficult. It's a very difficult uh, subject to wrap your head around. And yet, for us, that's the challenge we enjoy, right? We actually like, and, and I would go a step further to say that not only are these subjects uh, difficult, but at the same time, they're actually some of the most fascinating things uh, that we can think about because this is the ultimate sort of the, the most fundamental aspect or layer of reality that we can try to understand. And so I would hope that everyone would be interested and want to pursue some understanding of this just for your own, to satisfy your own intellectual curiosity. And so I think the interest is there, but you're right. It is a challenge and we love the challenge and we take it on every day. So along those lines, how do you measure the success of Quanta? I don't get the sense that you're counting page views and, and clicks. Given that it's not just a simple um, traffic issue, how do you figure out Hey, are we succeeding? Are we building a loyal audience? And are we making a difference in people's understanding of science? It sounds like it's really difficult to to come up with a measure of that. Right. No, that's a good question. And and so we uh, never use traffic as a justification for doing a story. We don't chase after clicks or views. However, uh, what we're really looking at is impact, right? Broader impact. Are we both covering the science that is important, are we choosing the right stories to cover, and are we doing it in a way that is accessible and is interesting and gets at uh, the key insights in a way that enough people will want to read it and learn about it. And so it, there is a measure of uh, of reach as well. We do want the audience to grow. We, right now we have, uh, see, last year, uh, I think we were at over 7 million people visit our site. Wow. Uh, and it's, it's growing year year to year very nicely. Um, because again, people are interested in these subjects and, and we're trying our best to, to make it accessible for them. Um, so it's both, uh, the, the numbers are important, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the people who are reading it, the, especially the people who are experts who actually know these subjects really well, uh, also find it valuable and they they uh, find that, that this is actually a resource that not only they can use, but that we are actually accurately covering the subjects for anyone who wants to learn more. So what's it like working with the Simons Foundation? I know that he has a deep and abiding interest in mathematics and has set up a number of philanthropic um, goals to try and not only focus on some of the really sophisticated, deep progress in math, but also make Americans a a better um, mathematical society. Uh, early learning in math and some advanced mathematical mm-hmm. um, programs. H- how do you interact with the with the foundation? 
Uh, yeah. So, and I should add that uh, really, the the one of the founders and the president of the foundation is Marilyn Simons, uh, Jim Simons' wife, mm-hmm. and she leads a lot of the efforts uh, that are geared more towards education and outreach and making sure people understand and know more about science. And Quanta falls under that uh, umbrella within the foundation. And so we, uh, I, I speak with uh, both Jim and Marilyn, and probably a little bit more with Marilyn because that's that's uh, the 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 area that she um, leads. Um, and you know, really, the foundation is a, a fantastic place to work. It's it's a place where uh, you I, good ideas are supported, and I hope you know people think that Quanta was a good idea. Uh, at the same time, the freedom is uh, whether it's academic freedom for researchers to study and pursue what they're interested in and to, to learn whatever they can about the universe, or our journalistic freedom to do real independent journalism. Um, while trying to to benefit society and make the impact that we can. So so let's talk about the two collections that you put out. Um, one is on math, one is on science. The the first one, uh, the prime number conspiracy. You have a lovely forward from James Glick, who has written a number of books. Perhaps most famously, Chaos. I think that's right. Is, that's right. He's a master of science writing. Chaos uh, is just a fascinating. Chaos. And and his most recent book was on uh, time travel, although. I'll I will describe it as uh, somewhat skeptical, um, and and kind of a survey of all the the various thoughts on, but but in this book you really go into a lot of details about various um, new discoveries in uh, there are these mathematical problems that have been around for decades in some cases centuries mm-hmm. and yes. whether it's computing power or something else. Prime numbers. You, you, the, a perfect example, the, the prime <laughs> number conspiracy. Suddenly, we're able to reach conclusions that we couldn't have done a century ago or even a few decades ago. Right. Math is just, I mean, pure math especially, right? I mean, this is this is one of those areas where, and, and one of the deep questions that you know people have asked over the years is, you know, why does math even work in describing the real world, right? Is math invented or discovered? That's just one of those questions. It's a great, that, it's a great uh, dichotomy. Right, right. And, and so, uh, but the, the pure math that we cover... Um, you know, it is done again to build out this logical universe, right? To sort of see where where people can explore. It's almost like it's it's not necessarily a map to our actual reality, and yet strangely, some of the math that's being developed, just again extending our our logical universe, does come up back to be being very useful in terms of the physics and other uh, sciences that we're studying. So uh, this is just one of the, uh, philosophically, I feel like that's one of the inter- most interesting questions out there. Why does it work? And and let's talk about Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire. Y- you have to explain that title for people who may not be familiar with uh, with the subject. Sure, sure. I, I picked the title. It's, it's one of the uh, stories that's in the book. Um, because it sounds kind of dramatic, right? You have, and the, the cover has, shows uh, two astronauts standing in front of this hole in the ground, which is supposed to metaphorically represent a, a black hole, and there's a, a ring of fire around this uh, deep, dark pit. Um, and and this is actually one of the interesting uh, theoretical questions in physics that has come about in recent years. Uh, it was put forward by a, a few researchers, including Joe Polchinski, uh, um, who unfortunately passed away um, uh, recently. Um, but the question is, uh, this, and this is also something that Stephen Hawking uh, put forth uh, initially, which is, black holes we know uh, have, are, uh, have intense gravity, and they suck things in, and the things uh, from at, a, at a quantum level contain quantum information. And if something falls into a black hole, you know what happens to that information, especially after Stephen Hawking uh, discovered that uh, black holes radiate. 
And if they're radiating, what's now known as, as Hawking radiation, then eventually, over a very, very long time period, the black hole will evaporate and mm -hmm. disappear. And so what happened to a lot of information that fell into the black hole in the first place? You can't, physics says you can't lose information. You've got to conserve information. And so what happens to it? And so this is a, a paradox which uh, was highlighted by this uh, idea that, that these researchers, including Joe Plotinsky, had uh, of a black hole firewall. And so the idea was, well, if information that drops in, we can't lose it, maybe there's a firewall that just incinerates everything before it gets in so it never goes inside. And this also gets at, again, one of the, the uh, most fundamental questions right now in physics, which is, how do we reconcile quantum mechanics with general relativity? Because general relativity says, if we follow Einstein's um, laws of, of, of gravity, which you know essentially is described as, as uh, uh, curvature in space-time, mm -hmm. If you fall into a black hole, as you pass the event horizon, nothing should happen, according to general relativity. You, should, you shouldn't feel anything at all. Uh, but quantum mechanics says everything has to be quantized. Everything has to be done in discrete bits and uh, is particle interactions. And so uh, that's where you have the problem of the information coming, falling in and possibly disappearing when the black hole evaporates. And that's where you get this firewall. And so quantum mechanics makes you think maybe there has to be something like a firewall or something that, that's preventing the information from getting in and getting lost. Uh, and so there's this big uh, conflict between the, the two most fundamental theories that we have in physics, and we don't yet know how to connect those two things. It's quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Thomas Lin. He is the founding editor and editor-in-chief of Quanta, as well as two collections of uh, articles, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, The Biggest Ideas in Science, and The Prime Number Conspiracy, The Biggest Ideas in Math. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, uh, come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, quantum mechanics. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, uh, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thomas, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, I've been reading Quanta pretty much since it first came out and kind of felt like it was you and me and not a lot of people um, <laughs> knew about it. I'm a little bit of a, a science geek, um, but every now and then there's something kind of intriguing and accessible. And so I would work some of your your stories into my, my list of Go read these 10 things each morning. Thank you for doing that. And, uh, well, it was just really interesting stuff. And I, I, I love being the person who gets to expose other people to something new and interesting. And the work you guys do is is quite fascinating. Thank you. I actually have lots and lots of Jim Simon stories, most of which I won't share on the air. But I could share one, which is I went to Stony Brook, an undergraduate. I started out, anyway, as applied mathematics and physics. And when I was getting a tour of the university, when I was still in high school, 
I want to say this was like 77 or 78, you get a tour of the math department, or at least in the tour, there's the math department. And there's this guy standing outside, chain-smoking a cigarette with this sort of scraggly beard. And I just remember thinking, who the hell is that? Um, and then, you know, oh, and there's the head of our mathematics department, Jim Simons. I, I, I recall looking at him and thinking, this guy's lucky he's an academic because if he ever went into finance, no one would give this guy a dime, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty hilarious considering how spectacular the track record of Renaissance Technologies um, has been. I have other stories, but I, I can't. He definitely has an adventurous spirit, and he's such a... Code breaker, just an amazing background. Right, right. so smart, and, and so many interests. He really, you know, is, is modern-day, uh, you know, uh, Renaissance man. He, he really is. And, and the fact that he said, says to himself, I'm going to put together a hedge fund, but I'm not going to do it in New York, and I'm not going to do it in Greenwich, Connecticut, I'm going to do it out in he, – he's there in East to talk it. Um, I've never been out there. I, I really don't know Stony, about that side I, of things. I mean, but... <laughs> I know the area. It's past, past Stony Brook. And I'm not going to do it with traditional Wall Street people. I'm just going to hire mathematicians and physicists mm -hmm. and computer programmers. I think that's the most fascinating story in, um, in finance. Just, yeah, yeah, what Wall Street is doing is interesting, but I'm going to do it this way. And and has been tremendously successful. So, it's and it's so really, we're able to do the work that we do because of it. it, it it's incredibly uh, inspiring that someone could say the mainstream approach is not where my strength lay, and I'm going to do it this way, and it ends up being wildly successful. It's it's uh, you got to love a story like that. It's fascinating. So I know I only have you for for a, a short period of time. There were one or two questions we missed that I want to get to before I get to my, my favorite um, questions. Uh, I know we, we talked about how long it could take to write a story, but when you're trying to figure out, hey, will this make for a, a, a good piece, what, what goes into that calculus? Yeah, no, it's a combination of things. Uh, one is that we want to make sure that what we're covering is uh, some of the uh, most Important and and uh, perceived that way by the the research community uh, itself. Uh, important ideas that will then lead to new other ideas, and it's really pushing things forward. So one thing is that. Another is that you know we do want to cover again attempts to answer some of the big fundamental questions. That really is ultimately what we're about at Quanta. Uh, I think that's what I feel uh, is a draw to anybody out there, whether you have a science or math background or not, is that you want to know where we came from, where the universe came from, what is in this universe that, that we're a part of, and you know what is reality made of, really. And so if, if you want to know these things, you have to get at some of these basic questions that the research that we cover try to answer. I don't remember if this was Quanta. I, I, I read pretty broadly, but I think it was Quanta that the discussion... So we have the general theory of Big Bang, and there's a few holes in that theory. How did that giant inflationary expansion happen? Blah, blah, blah. But but some people have looked at, well, go back before the Big Bang. And I recall reading, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, someone had written a, a theoretical physics piece that said that the idea of nothingness is inherently unstable. And so you can't have nothingness forever because eventually nothingness will just vomit out a universe because 
on a human level, we understand what nothingness is, but on a, I, I can't even say galactic, within the broad universe, mm-hmm. having absolutely nothing is just mm-hmm. unbalanced and unstable and can't be sustained for trillions of years. What, was that a quanta piece? Uh, so there, there, we did do a story that looked at some new ideas um, you know, that uh, in cosmology where you know, there's a lot of evidence that something like cosmic inflation happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although there are questions as to whether there was really just one Big Bang or whether there's more of a cyclic kind of thing going on or more of a big bounce, right? Where things are expanding and then they end up contracting and then they bounce and you get another inflationary period and you know things kind of go in that way because- Big crunch, know, big bang, right, and because just if there was a, you know, just one and if there was nothing before that- then will eventually the universe will eventually die. Right, and what even entropy? What even gave you the, the 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 initial ingredients to, to to lead to the inflation of the universe? Right? right. So there's a lot of questions that are hard to answer um, with with existing knowledge. Just wait a few trillion years, and we'll we'll have all the answers. Yes, well, either that or, or we'll have nothing. <laughs> That's exactly right. So let me get to some of my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Um, let's jump right into it. Tell us the most important thing that we don't know about Thomas Lynn. Wow. Uh, let's see. You do probably do not know that uh, in 1994, when I was 20, I rode a bicycle across the United States of America. Really? I have a friend who did that. What was that like? That was amazing. Uh, we were young. We did not know what we were doing. It was we, a group? You know, it was, it, no, it's just a friend and I. So uh-huh. a college buddy and I, this was between my junior and senior years in college, uh, that we took those those months to ride from Oregon to New York. And How it long was did it take? the most amazing thing. Uh, it took about two months. Mm-hmm. And- where are you sleeping? How, how are you yeah, eating? So how are you living? This was, we, we went whole hog in terms of just putting everything that we needed to live on the bicycles themselves. We had about 50, 60 pounds of wow. gear in our panniers in the front and the back, over the front and back wheels, mm-hmm. uh, and everything we needed from the tent, sleeping bags, to a cook stove that we went to the gas station to pay 25 cents to get a little bit of gas to, to, to cook our meals. Everything that we needed and clothing and, and food and everything was in those bags, and we had quite an adventure. How, how long did this take? This took about... Uh, Two months, and uh, and and even counting for the extra day we spent in Yellowstone National Park and places where we wanted to just sort of enjoy ourselves a little bit. Um, did was, you did you map it out in advance, or was it just on the kind of winging on the road? Yeah. So back then, I mean, back before we had no GPS, Maps, right? No GPS, right? no GPS, no phones, no smartphones, any of that sort of thing. Um, there was an organization called Bike Centennial that used to sell these different routes that you could take, and I think the one we took, the route we took, was one of the longer ones. It was called, I think, the Trans America route. There's about four thousand miles wow where you went up from Oregon up to uh, Idaho and the Montana the Rockies and then you ended up winding and going down the Rockies all the way down to Colorado we crossed the continental divide like nine times I believe wow and then we started heading across uh, the plains uh, Kansas and back up through Missouri back to New York that four thousand miles that that's impressive um, tell us about your early mentors who impacted the way you looked at the world of of both writing and and science, yeah. So many mentors. I mean, I you know I have to really thank everybody that uh, almost all the editors that I've worked uh, for and with over the years, uh, especially some of the editors at the science desk, uh, former editors now, some of them. Uh, but like Laura Chang was the was the uh, desk editor at the New York, uh, the science desk editor at the New York Times when I was there. Jim Gorman was Science Times editor at the time. David Corcoran. So many of these editors helped shape me as a writer and editor, and also thinking about the best ways to communicate science to the public. 
So let's talk about your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, science or not. What do you like? Uh, I read a lot of different things. Uh, more recent books would uh, see right now. I am reading uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen's uh, book, The Sympathizer, which I think a couple of years ago won the Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a fictional uh, novel about the Vietnam War. Uh, I also uh, recently read Steve Strogast uh, just published a new book called Infinite Powers. It's about calculus. It's amazing whether you like calculus or whether you hate it. <laughs> you will love the book and you will learn things that you never knew you. Uh, could or or uh, that you uh, wanted to, but uh, you will be uh, uh, so uh, happy that you did. Wow, that's fascinating. Give us give us one more book. Make okay. Uh, wow. So uh, you know what? Those are more recent books. Uh, going all the way back, I'll say I'll give you two quick uh, sure. books that, uh, in terms of my all time favorites, one is The Kingdom and the Power by Gay Talese. It's about the New York Times uh, during that era, decades ago, uh, about how it served as uh, both the fourth estate as a publication, but also the internal machinations and the politics and the the uh, internal uh, sort of uh, struggles within the newsroom itself. And it gives you a really, uh, really good insight into how a, a major newspaper like the Times uh, came to be and, and operate. The other and, and you yeah. were there, so did it ring, read very yeah, true very to much, you? Yeah, very much. The funny thing is that decades later, I was there, and still many of the same general themes existed, and, and it was really fascinating to read, be reading the book while also living it uh, there. Uh, and the other book I would say that's one of my all-time favorites is uh, The Peloponnesian War by uh, Thucydides. It's about um, the conflict between uh, uh, the, the, the Greeks um, and uh, and and the Spartans um, back, you know, many centuries Thousands ago. Thousands of years ago, uh, and and uh, and it, you know, to me that that gets at some of the universal um, aspects of human nature, of societies, of why we get into conflicts and why we fight these wars. So, if a millennial or recent college grad came up to you and said they were thinking about a career in either science or math journalism, what sort of advice might you give them? You know, I would say um, find a place and and people uh, to work for and with that represent uh, your values that are uh, the kind of work that you want that you see yourself doing, and at the same time, be open to learning. Right? I think this is not about millennials or any particular generation. I think all young people starting out. Um, come in, you know, sometimes thinking that, that they have a lot of things figured out, and yet the people around you uh, often have a lot of experience, and uh, especially the ones who uh, are looking out for you and have your back, um, you know, it's good to work with them and listen to them and, and try to pick up a few things, because ultimately you will be that person down the road who will hopefully be uh, giving a lending hand to uh, the next generation. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of, of physics and science and mathematics and journalism today that you wish you knew 20 years or so ago when you were really exploring this this area? Wow. Uh, you know, I think I would say that I was just so new to it back, you know, 20 years ago. I wasn't even thinking about journalism yet as a career, right? I think I was probably teaching at the time. Um, but I think that having gone through what I have and, and having started this magazine and, and published these two books, I think that it, it, it feels very liberating in terms of knowing what you can build and the impact that you can create even when something doesn't currently exist that you uh, want to exist, right? And so sort of thinking big and thinking, well, maybe we don't have this thing yet, 
uh, that uh, in society or this publication doesn't yet exist or this company that you might want to start. And just having a little bit of that confidence and, and putting in the elbow grease and, and learning as much as you can, but having the willingness to go out and make the things that you think the world deserves. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Thomas Lin. He is the editor-in-chief and founder of Quantum Magazine, as well as the editor of two recent publications. The first is The Prime Number Conspiracy, and the second is Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, both of which uh, are discussing the biggest ideas in science and mathematics. If you've enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 or so such conversations we've had with people over the past five years. Uh, You can also find uh, the rest of our um, archives at Stitcher, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. If you've enjoyed this conversation, go to Apple iTunes, give us a five-star review, and tell us why you like this. If you don't like this, well, send me an email, and I'll I'll respond personally. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention the crack staff that helps put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwana is my engineer slash producer, uh, as well as uh, conscience of a generation. Um, Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.